Tonight, she is with me in Florida. We happen to have friends from Canada who were taking her with them this morning, but uh, Jane is looking forward to being here. This is, she regards, uh, she regards Florida uh, Boulevard Bible Chapel as a home church in Florida. Always remember your baptizing Jane in the ocean after we got married. We're tremendous. So, good to be back. And, uh, well, I better get on with it. But what we're going to do, this little visit, I got a couple of Sundays. I want to talk about what happened after Christ's resurrection. Today we're going to talk about, this morning, the Lord who removes doubt. I didn't read John 20 because of time, but you know this chapter, and I'll put the verses up as we go. Tonight I want to talk about Peter's restoration, the Lord who restores us. And then as we pray about next week, I want to get into witnessing um, the Lord who calls us to witness. The Lord who removes doubt, the Lord who restores us, the Lord who calls us to witness all post-resurrection and the beginning of the early church for our visit this time. But let's get into it. The Lord who removes tears and doubt. You know, I have to tell you that this chapter, John 20, I believe is one of the most important chapters in the whole of Scripture. And I say this because John 20 contains key evidence for the resurrection. And the reality is without the resurrection, the Christian gospel has no foundation. The Apostle Paul made that perfectly clear. You know what he wrote about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15? And remember, he wrote this within living memory of the event. This isn't hearsay stuff. And he, I'm going to read this in the message paraphrase uh, just to bring some freshness to it. But Paul wrote, if there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've been staking your life on is smoke and mirrors. The resurrection is that important. Without the resurrection, our Christian faith is destroyed. And, and I've got to tell you that the great thing about our faith is the empty tomb. That's the unique thing that distinguishes Christianity from all other faiths. I mean, it's the foundation of our hope in Christ. I cannot overestimate the importance of this. You think of Abraham, the father of Judaism, he died 2,000 years before Christ and he was buried in a cave by his sons. I mean, Gautama Buddha, the father of Buddhism, he died around 450 B.C. He was cremated and after his cremation, his ashes were sent round various kings in India. Muhammad, the Muslim prophet, he died of a fever, age 61, and I think it was June the 8th, 632 AD. But his grave's still here. You know, millions visit Muhammad's tomb every year, very elaborate tomb. Inside his body's well protected, but it's there. You see, the remainders of all these religious leaders, they still occupy a tomb. But those pilgrims and tourists who go to the garden tomb, what we think is the place where Jesus was buried, and I've been there. You go there, and there's really not much to see. It's just an empty slab of rock. It's unoccupied, because the Lord's gone. You see, our faith, and it's based on a lot more, let me say, it's based on a lot more than a stone rolled away to show an empty tomb. And this chapter, like other parts of the Bible, is also about 
credible witnesses to the risen Lord. And we're going to talk about a, a, a couple of those this morning. People who actually talked to him, people who touched him. I mean, they weren't expecting a resurrection, remember that. And of course, that's what uh, makes their account so authentic. Their eyewitness account is so convincing because there's no hearsay evidence here. I mean, it's all solid, detailed, first-hand witnesses by people who saw the Lord. And that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, look, there were many groups who saw him. Why, there's one group of even 500 people at once. So this is certainly not the stuff of hallucination or wish fulfillment, as some people might have thought. Now, what we're going to do today, because we've got limited time, is just look at a couple of eyewitness accounts in John 20. There's Mary Magdalene, and there's a group of disciples, but in particular, there's Thomas. And I'm going to concentrate mainly on Mary and Thomas, because, well, they had a very personal encounter. And that's what we need. You know, you're here this morning. What's important for you this morning is to have your own personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's great to hear about the Lord going to this group of disciples, verses 19-22. And he brought them peace and joy and, and power. And they were completely transformed by their encounter with Christ. But what's important is your encounter. You see, they were changed. I mean, because the disciples knew for certain he was alive, they went out fearlessly. Why did they go out so boldly, proclaiming the good news, disregarding all danger? Because there was no doubt. And, and, and they certainly wouldn't have gone and couldn't have gone if there was any doubt about the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But of course, uh, the reality is perhaps today you're, you're a bit, well, you're not feeling up about all that. Maybe you feel like Mary. Mary... Mary was bewildered and sad as we open this chapter. Or maybe you're like Thomas, you have your doubts. It's all very well, but I'm not sure. Listen, I want you to be encouraged this morning as we look at the transformation that responding to the risen Christ made. The reality is what the Lord Jesus did for them, he can do for you. And that's where we want to go this morning. And it, you see, it is so important, and it, it's possible by the Holy Spirit for you to have an encounter with the Lord. Of course, he's not physically with us, but like Thomas and Mary, as you respond in recognition and faith and worship to the Lord, you can and, and indeed will, as you turn to him, have your needs met, just like Mary and Thomas. So let's look at these. Mary Magdalene, now, she met the Lord who dries our tears. And that's important because I know there are people who have been through challenges and sadness. And there's Mary. You know, Mary Magdalene has for centuries been given an undeserved reputation as an immoral woman. And there's absolutely no evidence for that unwarranted speculation. And yet today, uh, in, in things like big best-selling novels like The Da Vinci Code or musicals like Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar, this woman, well, they perpetuate unfounded myths about her motive for following the Lord Jesus. I mean, 
she she did have some kind of epilepsy or mental illness, uh, which the Lord dealt with. Luke 8, 2, it said, he cast out seven demons. And I know that she was eternally grateful for the fact that the, the Lord had cured her. In fact, she was overwhelmed with gratitude to the Lord that healed her. And one of the evidences of that, as you read this chapter, is she was the one who stayed nearby at the trial and watched the crucifixion. Got to contrast that with Peter tonight because, I mean, she was there with when they, with Joseph when they put the, the tomb in the the Lord's body in the tomb. In the opening verses of John twenty, um, she was up before dawn. She was at the tomb. She was weeping in the darkness, of course, because she found his body had gone. You know, even after Peter and that beloved disciple John had left for home, just saw the empty tomb, they saw the grave clothes with a folded headcloth, which is, of course, a little confirming detail. They looked at that and they left. Where did Mary stay? She stayed at the tomb. She was last at the cross when Jesus died for our sins. She was first at the tomb. She was there. Uh, and she, actually, this is an astounding thing. She was the first to physically encounter the risen Lord himself. She was the first to witness what is actually the most important event in human history, the pivotal truth of our Christian faith, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is very significant. You know, the choice of Mary as a first witness is more evidence of the authenticity of the biblical account. You see, you, you need to remember that among the Jews in New Testament days, a woman's testimony was discounted. I mean, these were chauvinistic days. In those days, only men were accepted as witnesses in their chauvinistic legal system. And I mention this because it confirms the truth of the account as a report of what actually happened. I mean, no fraudster. In the first century, no person trying to fabricate the story of Christ's resurrection would choose a woman as key witness. But there it is, it happened. And there she was, in, in despair and grief, lingering at the tomb, weeping. She just stood there because she didn't expect the resurrection. She'd actually gone to dress the body. Uh, and she looked at that stone, now moved and stared in disbelief at the empty graves. And, and, oh, she said, someone stolen his body. This was a final indignity. I mean, she was feeling utter despair. But notice a little detail. I love this. Both the angels and the Lord said, why are you weeping? There she was crying. And they said, why are you weeping? And I, I thought about this. It should have been obvious, man. The Lord's died and his body's gone. But you see, from the point of view of heaven, tears were the last thing that, that should be seen in the empty tomb. I mean, what's the empty tomb? It's a place where tears are least appropriate, if we accept the resurrection. I mean, this was a really a, a victorious and joyful moment. Christ had completed his mission. And now with a glorified body, ready, ready to ascend triumphantly back to heaven, Christ is alive. It's going to the Father's side. Of course, Mary didn't think about all that. But I said, why are you weeping? But there it was, this great honor. God 
conferred on the faithful Mary Magdalene, permitting her to be the first to meet the Lord personally when he rose from the tomb. And she found he's the Lord who dries our tears. You see, she's trembling in grief. Uh, uh, and the explanation's clear. I mean, Mary weeps because, and, and oh, I love this detail in Scripture. She said, they've taken away my Lord. This was an intimate relationship. Uh, she said, I find this astounding. Tell me where he is and I'll get him. I mean, this woman said, I've got to do this. I know, sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I read this stuff and I, I don't know what to say. I say, this is, I have a list of wow statements. I mean, it's astounding. They've taken away my Lord and I'm going to get him. This, this was no weak woman. And, and I found this so moving, so, so beautiful, such a tender moment. Because Jesus comes. Verse 16. And he speaks one word. No big lecture, no theology. He just says, Mary. Mary. Uh, and, of course, her tears turn to joy. She cries out, teacher, and she reaches out to hold him. It was an astounding thing, the way the Lord just reached out. You know, you know I love these Snoopy little cartoons, but this was Mary at the end of what a week. She says, Snoopy, this has been a bad week for me. If anyone had a bad week, it was Mary. Uh, and and, and uh, I don't know, this is Peppermint Paddy or somebody, but she says, what can you do when everything seems hopeless? Now, Snoopy had a unique answer. <laughs> I mean, uh, smack. <laughs> and she says, that's good advice. Uh, now, that, 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 you know, I show you that amusing cartoon, but the reality is uh, there's no complicated lectures needed at this point, no theology, there's just love needed. That's what Jesus shows. I mean, uh, no, I better take that off, you're not concentrating. <laughs> but, but, but in this case, they usually say seeing is believing, but here it was hearing is believing. She heard a voice, the voice Mary. And voices are distinctive, you know my voice, I can't. I can never make anonymous phone calls and know who it is. And, and you know, the other, a little while back, I was getting a new cell phone and I was at the booth in the mall and the manager's trying to tell me about the phone, but he keeps hesitating and staring at me and looking puzzled. And I'm, well, what's the matter with him? Come on. And he suddenly goes, Oh, you're the science guy. I said, what do you mean? Oh, he said, my mother used to make me listen to you on the radio every week. I used to do a science feature on radio years ago. Worked with Family Bible on that. But he said, I recognize your voice. And this was, this was several years later. But he still remembered that distinctive voice. That's why I put stuff on the screen, because with an accent, you guys in Florida... When I'm talking quickly, probably don't know what I'm saying, but there it is. It's a, that's what he recognized. And Mary hears that tender, loving voice of the Lord saying her name in a way that she immediately recognized. And this is important. You know, I said it's you that counts this morning. Remember, the Lord knows your name. I mean, he knows your circumstances. I love John 10, 3, talking about Jesus. It, as a good shepherd, he said, look, the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. It's Mary 
even knows Malcolm's name. All of us, sinners, like you and I, knows our name. See, the Lord's personal and compassionate. People have an idea of God's spirit, power, something abstract. The Lord Jesus Christ showed us God is personal and compassionate. You know, some people are puzzled by the statement in verse 14 that Martha didn't recognize Jesus. It seems so personal. But you see, Scripture is clear. I might talk about this next Sunday night. We'll see. But, but Scripture is clear that Christ's resurrection body, although tangible, it could be touched, it was a transformed body. It wasn't like Lazarus. Lazarus got his own body back again, and he would die again. But Christ's resurrection body, yes, it was observable. It was interactive with physical realities, but it was changed. It was not restrained by space or time or physical barriers like our bodies. I tried to walk through a glass door recently and broke my glasses. I can't do it. (laughs) But see, Christ's body... This is what impressed Thomas. We'll come to that in a minute. But Scripture says it's the body of his glory, Philippians 3.20. You see, and remember this, this is always so personal in Scripture. This isn't just some theology of resurrection because at Christ's return, our bodies will be changed to become like his glorious body. I mean, Scripture, at Christ's return... 1 John 3, 2 says, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. This, this will be so tangible. But now we look by faith, and I'm glad you're looking at 1 John. 1 John, I, I believe you're doing in other studies. But that's a great scripture, 1 John, which will be like him, for we'll see him as he is. We'll recognize him, just like Thomas did, as we'll see in a minute. We'll recognize him by I think I told you before, and this is a good, pardon me, trivial pursuit question. Is there any man-made thing in heaven? The only man-made thing in heaven, the nail prints. Well, recognized by the, we sing the prints of the nails in his hand. Now, don't misunderstand verse 17. In the King James Version, it says, Jesus said, don't touch me. Now, clearly, Christ encouraged the disciples to reach out uh, and touch him. We'll see that later in the chapter. In the case of Thomas, he said, touch. But you see, Mary was holding him tightly. And what Jesus is saying, don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me, as the NIV said, because I'm going to my Father. Because things were changing. I mean, in the future, the Lord will be known in a different way. And Christ is preparing her for what we experience now when sight and touch is not how we experience Jesus. We experience him by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who's called a comforter, he's the one, as we respond to his call, who shows Christ to us. So you can experience your own encounter with the Lord. He still comforts us. He still dries our tears, but it's a little different than this physical encounter. And it is wonderful to realize that the Lord, now free of time and space, can by the Holy Spirit come to you personally. And that's why you're going to pray and fast and be before him, because as you respond to his call, what you can experience is Exactly what Mary experienced. The one who replaces your tears with joy. 
And remember, the Lord, I mean, the Lord promises to do this. I'm not talking short term. You know how the Bible ends. It's just wonderful. It says, I talk about Mary's tears being dried, but God will wipe away, Revelation 21, 4, all tears from their eyes. And there'll be no more death and no crying, no sorrow. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things have passed away. Oh man, when we die, <laughs> no tears. You hear that at funerals, but it's the truth. And I've got to say this morning, whatever the cause of your sadness or tears, if you turn in faith to Christ, you'll just find he's the Lord who dries your tears. And I could give testimony to that, and Jane certainly could, as you know. After we married, she lost a daughter, a brother, a sister, and all, all in four weeks, and went through incredible grief. We experienced the reality of this. And that's the great truth of the gospel. Now, Thomas. i got to move to Thomas quickly. You know, time flies in Florida. I can't believe it. But he meets the Lord as the one who removes all doubt. And let, we need to get into this. You know, verse 24, Jesus appears to Thomas. And we always call him Doubting Thomas. And I want to talk about his problem. Because Thomas's problem about believing Christ was risen... You know, it started when, for some unknown reason, he wasn't even present when the Lord revealed himself to the disciples. I think I'm now getting educated by my grandsons, like uh, Micah, into um, social media. And uh, I think Thomas maybe was suffering from uh, what they call FOMO. <laughs> FOMO is the fear of missing out. I mean, you've got to think about Thomas. I mean, it must have been tough. He meets the disciples after they've seen Jesus. They're so excited. What do you think they said? They said, you should have been there. Man, they'd, they'd say with great excitement. And if you've got FOMO, it's tough to hear that. I mean, you should have been there. Mind you, it's, it's good to have a touch of FOMO because uh, maybe if you miss church, you should be here all the time. I'm preaching to the converted, but... When blessing comes, you don't want people to say, oh, you should have been there. <laughs> and, uh, well, just remember, you've got to be there to see it. But you see, Thomas wasn't there, and it's surprising to me, given their certainty and joy, that he doesn't buy their claim. I mean, he knew they were reliable witnesses, but he says in verse 25, well, I don't care if unless I see the wounds and sighed for myself, I'm not going to believe. You know, Thomas was like a lot of people I've talked to over the years on university campuses, scientists and so forth, who say, I need solid observational evidence. I won't believe anything unless I see it. Now, that's, there's nothing wrong with that because, of course, not everything people claim is true. So I'm all for evidence. I mean, to decide whether something is true, we need evidence. That's why I'm the evidence for the gospel is so important. You see, faith for a Christian is not believing something you suspect to be untrue. We don't suspend our rationality. On the other hand, remember this, the fact that you can't explain something doesn't make it untrue. So it's good that Thomas said, where's the evidence? Now, of course, he had evidence. Man, he'd seen Lazarus rise from the dead. He knew Christ could conquer death. 
But the Lord knows what's going on in your mind. He knew what was going on in Thomas's mind. And, 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 and of course, he's a seeking, patient Savior. And it's wonderful, really. So, just about a week later, the Lord comes again. The group is assembled, and he calls Thomas over. He said, okay, Thomas, go ahead. See for yourself. Look at the evidence. Of course, confronted with Jesus. I mean, Jesus had appeared in the room. Thomas doesn't bother going through his checklist. All doubts disappear, and something important happens. Pay attention to this. Thomas just bows down in worship. He confesses Christ. He said, my Lord and my God, and notice Jesus accepts this. You think about that. It's such important evidence for the deity of Christ. No first century Jew would accept worship which is due to God alone. But Jesus accepted it. He accepted it without any correction, without any reservation. Why? Because he's God. Never forget that. And once Thomas recognized the deity of Christ, once he worshipped him as Lord and God, everything changed. Now, Now there could be no doubt about anything he says or does. Since he's God, it means omnipotence. Believing that Christ is God and Lord of all means, well, there's no boundary or limit to be placed on him. Don't limit Christ. You can entertain no doubt about any of his plans. You can't doubt his abilities or his, the rightness of everything he does. This is a standard of rightness. Everything he does, everything he has you to do, because, well... It's just the same with us. Once you recognize him as Lord and God, doubts disappear. So that's it. And if you have to ask yourself, what's God like? What's the Lord like? You've got it this morning. With Martha, he was personal and compassionate. With Thomas, he was powerful and concerned. He was verily God, but become truly human. Absolutely no doubt. And I want you to notice particularly how the Lord accommodates Thomas. I'm going to skip over this example here uh, about the boy's father because time's gone on. But, but listen, I want you to notice how gentle the Lord was with Thomas. He does rebuke him. He says in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Now that's a blessing for you today. Because we've not seen physically, we can't see Christ physically, yet we believe. Does this mean we believe without evidence? Of course not. You see, Thomas's problem was that he wanted only a certain kind of evidence. He wouldn't believe those who were there, even though they, they were eyewitnesses who could be trusted. Uh, that's why, you know, I, 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 I think Thomas should be called unbelieving Thomas, not doubting Thomas. Because he knew these men. He knew they could be trusted. He ought to have believed their right witness account. Uh, I like this cartoon. It's a crudely drawn thing. But this guy, Thomas, says, All I'm saying is we don't call Peter denying Peter. We don't call Mark runaway naked. Mark, why should I be saddled with this title? (laughs) One of the disciples said, Well, I see your point, Thomas. But really, you have to move on. (laughs) But you see... I want to say this seriously. Thomas wasn't struggling with some of the doubts we often have. Thomas was firmly refusing to believe the witness of all those who were there and they knew could be trusted. 
Now, it's important not to doubt because you're demanding a certain kind of evidence. One of the most famous atheists in the world, Richard Dawkins, well-known British advocate of atheism, he only counts observational evidence. He says you can't believe anything else. But you see, you know we believe so many things in life that we don't directly observe physically. Listen, I believed Earth was round long before NASA photographs showed a spherical Earth. If you think about it, most murderers are convicted not because someone saw them do it. If every murder was witnessed, we'd have no problems getting convictions. But you see, they're convicted on the basis of what? Reliable, collected evidence. We have all kinds of reliable, connected evidence, collected evidence for the gospel. And if everybody was like Thomas, well, there wouldn't be any believers today because... And there, in fact, very few people who committed murder would ever be convicted. You see, we need to recognize there are two ways of coming to faith. One is by observing the evidence directly. That's what Thomas felt he must do. But secondly, and this is what we do, believing the testimony of credible witnesses who themselves saw the evidence. And that's what we have. You know... It's just like Thomas. We have the evidence. But like Thomas, we have our strengths and weaknesses. And whilst there's more I could say about this, you know, i got to tell you, for, for many doubters and seekers, and they include some very bright scientists, one of the most famous scientists in, in, in the world, and certainly in this country, it's Francis Collins, who was appointed by Clinton as the head of the health agency here, but who unraveled a structure of DNA. You know how he came to faith? Well, it was catalyzed by the witness of people who were dying with joy and peace. And I talked to him personally about this. He came to faith by wondering how he could explain the way Christians died. So he read John's Gospel. He read the first-hand account, and he came to faith by those reliable witnesses. And by the way, when you're witnessing, try to draw people's attention to the first-hand account. Don't hesitate to get them reading Scripture for themselves. I'll say more about that next week. We'll talk about witnessing. But I want to say about Thomas, just to remind you, that he had strengths and weaknesses. You know, way back in John 11, he was the one when the disciples fled they were going to go into this city and they said, no, this try to stone you last time. He said, no. Thomas said, let us go that we may die with him. Now that was a brave aspiration, but it was not an action. When you get to Matthew 26, Thomas fled with the rest. In fact, all but John and the women. We'll talk about Peter tonight. But listen, the last line I want for you today is Thomas finished well. You have strengths, you have weaknesses, but the important thing, and I say this to, I'm glad there's so many young people here. I got this message thinking of uh, some of the churches down here where everybody has a walker and a wheelchair and nobody's under 75. And I was going to talk to you about finishing well, but it's true for all of us. You see, encountering the risen Christ means that all your doubts are resolved. If you know Jesus and you pray with him and walk with him, your doubts are resolved. And you know you can fully trust him. 
But it's not only for this life, it's for the next. And I've got to tell you, you can have confidence. Not just confidence day to day, but 1 John 4, I'm so glad you're doing 1 John, such an important letter. We'll have confidence on the day of judgment. And the bottom line is, as you leave today, the bottom line is, you leave, I pray, fully trusting in the living Lord. Determined to, at all stages in life, follow him and finish well. Because he is a personal Lord. He calls your name. He meets you in your weakness. He's a risen Lord. He wipes away tears. He removes doubt. And he promises to be with us always. Because he is Lord. He's risen from the dead. And he's Lord. And every knee shall bow. Do you know this chorus? Do you sing that? Wait, let's sing it and then we're over. Wake up now. <laughs> he is Lord. Let's say, do it a cappella. Somebody start it. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Lord, do bless this congregation and this word and pray tonight as we come and talk about a man who failed and was restored that you'll continue to speak to us and bless us today as we bring our parting praise in the name of the Lord Jesus.